are listening to the weekly sermon podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. If you'd like to learn more about CBC, check out our website at cbcofsavannah.org. And now this week's message. All right, we are going to do something. Uh, we're we're going to start something a little bit different this new year from what we've done in the past. Um, we're, we're starting a brand new series today. Uh, we've, we've called it Lagos. And uh, the word Lagos, the Greek word Lagos, just means word. It's the word that means word. Typically what we do at CBC, if you've been here for any amount of time, is we work through books of the Bible. And I promise we have not abandoned that. Um, and we will continue to do that. But once in a while, we'll take a brief hiatus from that and do something that's a little bit uh, appropriate for maybe culturally what's going on. And this is going to be a series, just a three-week series on the word, um, not Genesis through Revelation. We're going to cover it in three weeks. That's not all I mean. But we're going to talk about the scripture. For instance, why is it that we do we do here at CBC expositional preaching? I, we start at the beginning of a book and work our way through it. Why do we do that? It's because of our view of scripture, what we believe the scripture says about itself, what we believe um, it means, where does it come from? Because we have a high view of scripture, that is why we do it. But we, what, our goal for you, one of our goals is we, our mission, as we say, is to equip people to passionately follow Christ so that they impact and love their world, their community, their families, all those areas. So it is our job to equip you. And, and the, the scripture has been under attack for thousands of years, but it's still today, people, even in churches, ah, Genesis doesn't mean what it says. Oh, they, you know, this is what it does. It doesn't really mean that anymore. It, it was yeah, true for then. It's not true for now. And you have all these attacks. The scripture is not reliable. Well, what about the manuscripts? What about the, all the errors? And so we want you to be equipped to handle some of those discussions um, so that you are not kind of, kind of, as Paul says, kind of tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine, right? So that you are able to give a defense for your faith with gentleness and reverence, as Peter says it. You do not have to check your brain at the door when you put your faith in Christ and the word of God. You don't. It's not just some leap of, oh, I'm taking a leap of faith and I just, you know. No, God has given us a mind because he wants us to think. Um, and, and the creation has order and the scripture has order and he is a God of order and he has spoken. And so we want to be able to understand what does he say about the word? What does the word truly mean? What is it? Is it from him? Is it not? So we want you to be able to answer all those questions so that you have confidence in the truthfulness of scripture. Okay, that, so that's one of the little goals here. But the big goal is this. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. Long ago, many, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Our main goal for this is because we have confidence in the scripture that our church would be a loving church. And so where does that come from, from talking about the Bible? Here's why. What is the scripture? The scripture is the story of how God, because of his great love, glorifies himself and redeems lost man. In Genesis chapter three, how man rebels and we are his enemies. And how does God redeem lost man to himself and save them because of his great love? That is the story from Genesis to Revelation of the Bible. It is the story of God's love for us and how he redeems us. Right? And now because he has shown his great love for us, we love because he first loved us. How do we love the world. A lot of churches, oh, let's just go be loving and let's go do all these things. A love for the world does not just come because we decide to go out one day and be loving. A love for the world and a love for your neighbor and a love for your enemy and a love for your spouse ultimately comes from a love for God. That's where we start. 
We don't start out there. We start with loving God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And as an outflow then, because God loves others, we love others. So we're gonna start there. Our desire here is this, simply, is that you would love Christ, who is revealed in his word. God reveals himself in many ways through creation, through reason, through logic, but ultimately he has revealed himself in his word. This is where he specifically tells us what he is and who he is and what he expects from us and how he has saved man. You can't look at the moon and say, oh, God left heaven, became a man, died on a cross for sins and resurrected in three days. You don't get that from the moon. You get that from here. You get this, the life of Christ from here. And we just want to be a church that because of our love for Christ and because we're drawing near to him, then we start loving others and loving our spouse well, loving our kids well, loving our neighbor well, loving our enemy well, loving our nation well. It starts with our love for Christ. We do not worship the scriptures. We don't. This is not God. We worship the God of the scriptures. And so it's our desire for this church, because of our high view of what God has said, that you would know him better in 2014 through his word. And because you know him better, you'll love him. And because you love him, the outpouring will be there. At the end, you're going to get some facts. There's going to be some information. And it's important information so that we can be confident. But that is not the goal. Please don't walk away. Oh, good, I can defend my faith against all the Jehovah's Witnesses to come to my door now. That is not the goal of this. And if that's all you get, then you'll have missed the point. We want you to love Christ. And so we want to give you confidence in the word of Christ because God has spoken about himself through this so that you will love him and then we can be a church of love. If we are a church of truth without love, we are a noisy, nasty gong, right? That's what, that's what Paul says. And so let's not have truth without love. And that is the goal of this. And so we're going to spend a couple weeks talking about all those hows and whys and, and other things so that you guys will draw near to Christ. So let me pray for our series, but also pray for our time as we worship too. Lord Jesus, I thank you for yourself. You are the word. You are the logos who in the beginning you were uh, and you took on flesh uh, and now you have spoken and you have said, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. And so I just pray that we would be as a church set apart for yourself and that we would be a church who loves one another because you first loved us. Use our time of worship, our singing, um, and our time as, as, as we teach and exalt you through that. And then again, as we sing and respond, uh, to glorify yourself, Lord. Uh, and I pray these next three weeks will be fruitful and that you would equip us as a church to passionately follow you so that we will love our world well. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. You guys pray with me. Father, we need you this morning. We, we need you to see who you are. We need you to understand rightly your word. I desperately need you, Lord. I am weak, unable to proclaim your word accurately, rightly, apart from your spirit. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that right now you would move and that you would give us ears to hear, God. We need help to hear from you. Lord, would you give us confidence this morning in your word? And as a result, confidence in you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as Bill mentioned, we are in a uh, three-week series, just starting it on this book. The best-selling book of all time. The most controversial book of all time. The first book ever in 
print. A book about which more books have been written than any other book ever. A book that has motivated and inspired some of the greatest works of art and creativity in world history. A book that thousands have willingly died for. The book in your lap is an astonishing book. But, but what's even more astonishing than being the bestseller of all time or the most controversial book ever is what the Bible claims about itself. And so I want to start our discussion there this morning, looking at what the Bible claims about itself. And here are the questions I want to answer. Is the book in your lap really God's word? I mean, are, are the words on these pages that sit in your lap really the words of God? Can you trust this? Can we actually build our lives on this book? My hope is that after our time today, the answer will be a confident yes. Um, and we're going to start in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, almost all the way to the back of the Bible. Um, and our, our first kind of question is this. What does the Bible say about the Bible? Instead of being in one passage this week, we're going to be bouncing around. Uh, and we'll start here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 16, this is the hallmark verse on the doctrine of inspiration, the inspiration of the scripture. Here's what Paul says. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So this is the big claim that the Bible makes about itself, that it is God-breathed. Or some of your translations say inspired. All scripture is inspired by God. Now, when you hear inspired, don't think of a Chicago song. Don't think of a Vince Lombardi speech. Don't even think about the writers of scripture being moved or affected by something they saw or witnessed so they were compelled or inspired to write it down. When the Bible talks about, or when we talk about biblical inspiration, that's not what we mean. When we talk about inspiration, we're really talking about expiration, about God breathing out the scriptures, theonoustos. All scripture is God-breathed. That's what the Bible's claiming. That's what Paul's claiming here. And so think about this. This book is saying that Almighty God is its author. quite a claim. Right? We're going to put up on the screen a definition of inspiration for you. Again, the first thing the scriptures are claiming, um, this idea that the words of scripture are spoken by God himself. As Christians, we believe that. We believe that the words on the pages in the book in your lap are God's words. If, we're, if we think about that, we can see why some people think we're a little loony. Invisible God, Almighty God has spoken, and we have the account of what he's spoken. 
But there's only really two options, right? I mean, either people can talk about if there is a God and what this God might be like, and we can speculate all about God, or God could reveal himself to us, which is what Paul tells Timothy has happened, that God has breathed this book out, God has authored it, and Paul is essentially saying when the scripture speaks, God speaks. Now, you might be thinking, you're trying to argue the case that the scripture is the words of God, that it's authored by God, but you keep saying Paul writes, or Paul said. So who's the author? Is it God or is it, in this case, Paul? I think the answer is yes. God wrote the scripture and man wrote the scripture. To say it more specifically, God authored the scripture through man. Let me show you where we get this. 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Even further back in your Bible, uh, 2 Peter. Here's what he writes. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here's the idea about how the book in your lap was breathed out by God. It was not these men who were just supernaturally gifted to be great theologians, and so they wrote the Bible. Not what happened. It's also not these men who were totally taken over or possessed by God and kind of unconsciously or subconsciously writing these words. And really only in a few instances in the Old Testament is it God speaking audibly and saying, write this down. That only happened a few times. Now, the way that Scripture has been inspired by God or breathed out by God is through real people who were writing, they were thinking, they were feeling, and they were writing through their education level, through their own personality, within their own culture. But as they wrote, the Holy Spirit of God was supernaturally guiding them. As their doctrines came down on paper and their words and their ideas, God was producing just what he wanted to say. So just like we would say Jesus is fully man and fully God, we would say the scriptures were written fully by God and fully by man. That's how God breathed his scripture. So that's the first claim the Bible makes. It claims to be inspired. God's words through man's pen. The second thing that scripture claims is to be faultless. The book in your lap claims to be without any error at all. Let me show you where we get that from. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. It says, every word of God proves true. Every word of God proves true. And then Jesus says in John chapter 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So it's from verses like these and more that we get what we call the doctrine of inerrancy. And this is the second thing that the Bible claims. Here's a simple definition for it. Inerrancy is the idea that Scripture in its original manuscripts, is completely without error in everything that it talks about. It's completely without error in all matters to which it speaks. Now, when we bring up this definition, usually two questions arise pretty quickly. The first one is this. 
what is this original manuscript stuff? Uh, the scripture is only inspired, it's only inerrant, it's only faultless in its original manuscripts. We're not going to talk much about this today. Bill's going to spend a good time uh, on this next week. But for me, this actually validates scripture because it means that there was a moment in time where man was writing and as his pen was moving, God was speaking. I think after next week, and Bill talks about the original manuscripts, you'll, you'll be confident that the book in your lap is the right book. Um, the second question that comes up after this definition of inerrancy is this. Is the scripture really without error in all matters to which it speaks? Is it really without error regarding everything that it talks about? And I would say the short answer is yes. But sometimes for me, just like I use figurative language, or I maybe use round numbers and say, I live 20 minutes from the church, when really I live 17 and a half minutes from the church, doesn't mean I'm lying. It just means I'm speaking as humans speak, which the Bible does. Right? The, the idea is that the Bible claims to always tell the truth regarding everything that it talks about. So it doesn't talk about everything. But regarding everything that it talks about, it claims to always tell the truth. So those are our two big picture claims that the Bible makes. It claims to be God-breathed, and it claims to be faultless. Some of you guys are thinking, well, I, I don't know if I believe that. And that's, that's good. But you're, you're thinking, man, well, if you're trying to encourage me or convince me, that the Bible is the word of God, but I don't believe the Bible, then your arguments from the Bible don't carry a whole lot, of, whole lot of weight. And I get that. But let me tell you why we start with the Bible. We start with the Bible because it claims to be the word of God. And if this claim is true, if this actually is God's word, there is no higher authority. That There is nothing that speaks louder. There is nothing that carries more weight than this book if that claim is true. If God is the source of it and God cannot lie, then this is the top dog. So it doesn't matter what science says. It doesn't matter what reason says. It doesn't matter what personal experience says. If this is God's word, it has to take utmost authority, which is why we start there. But there are lots more reasons why we should believe this claim that the Bible is the word of God, both from inside and from outside of Scripture. So the next thing we want to consider is Jesus Jesus. We've got to ask the question, how did Jesus view the scripture? Because you know this, if you're a Christian, you base your whole life on the reality that the historical man in Nazareth at the turn of the common era was God in flesh. We, we bank our entire existence on this one guy. And so we need to ask, what did he think about the Bible? What did he think about the Bible? The first thing that I think is clear from the Gospels that Jesus understood about the Bible is this. He would have affirmed the doctrine of inspiration. Jesus affirmed biblical inspiration. And I want to show you where I'm getting that. Um, if you guys could turn in your laps to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to put up Matthew chapter 19 up on the screen. So Genesis chapter 2, second chapter in the Bible. 
And I'm going to read Matthew 19. What's happening here is Jesus is talking about marriage, and he's quoting Genesis chapter 2. So here's what he says. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, male and female? Okay, who created male and female? Easiest question you'll have all day? God, right? He who created them from the beginning, male and female, said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So Jesus attributes this quote in Matthew chapter 19 to God. Okay, now look down at Genesis chapter 2, 24 in your, uh, in your Bible. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Everything looks good, right? Here's the issue. Look back up to verse 18 if you've got Genesis 2 open in your lap. Verse 18 is a quote from God. God is directly speaking. Okay? And that verse is in quotations because God was speaking. But when you look at verse 19, the narrator, who in this case is Moses, picks back up writing. Verse 24, it's still the narrator writing. So Moses is the one writing verse 24, and he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What's the point? My point is, in Genesis 2, Moses wrote it. And in Matthew 19, Jesus attributed it to God. Jesus viewed the scriptures as spoken by God. Even though Moses wrote it the way that our Lord viewed it as, is as God's words. Does everybody see that? So Jesus would have affirmed the doctrine of inspiration. He also would have affirmed the doctrine of inerrancy or the reality that the scriptures are faultless. And let me show you where I'm getting that. This is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. Matthew 5, verse 18, the first book of the New Testament, if you're new to the Bible. And here's what Jesus said. He says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass uh, from the law until it's all accomplished. He's saying even down to the iota, the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, and even down to the dot, this little mark that differentiates between Hebrew letters, the scripture is exactly what God intended. So down to a letter, down to a mark, the scripture is without error, Jesus is claiming. And I hope this gives us confidence, right, that the king of kings views at the very least, the Old Testament as the perfect word of God. Still, for some of you, though, you're like, dude, well, you can't convince me with the scripture because I'm not sold on the scripture, and you can't convince me with Jesus because I'm not sold on Jesus. Got you. What we're going to do now is move from claims to evidence. So we have these claims that the scripture is God-breathed, these claims that the scripture is faultless. Now I want to look at different evidences that lead us to believe that this is true. Um, hope this will encourage you as it encouraged me. First, we're going to look at evidences from within the Bible, internal evidences. And here's our first one. The uniqueness and harmony of the Bible. The uniqueness and harmony of the Bible. Let me explain what I mean. The Bible is one book, but it's compiled of 66 different 
books written over the course of 1,500 years, written by 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages. The men who wrote this book were prophets and priests and kings and fishermen and tax collectors and physicians and shepherds, all living in different cultures, living at different times. There's no other book like this. I'm not the most creative guy, but I couldn't come up with that. And, and even some of you SCAD students, I think this might be a stretch. Right? 40 authors, 1,500 years, total diversity. But check this out. It fits together in perfect harmony. All these complex thoughts, all these complex experience, experiences, just everybody was so different. But the ideas of the Bible and the doctrines of the Bible and the overlying, the story of the Bible, that God would come to sinful man through his own son to rescue them back to himself. It's on every page. Man couldn't come up with a book like this. So the uniqueness of the Bible and the harmony of the Bible point to it being God-breathed and faultless. That's the first reason. Second internal evidence is the honesty of the Bible. The honesty of the Bible. The Bible's too honest to be written by men. It just is. Let me explain what I mean. The people that we would call our heroes, they are notorious in the Bible for just being screw-ups. So Adam and Eve rebel against God. Abraham's a coward. Moses has anger issues. David's an adulterer and a murderer. Peter, on the night that he should be faithful to Christ, denies him. Paul's trying to kill Christians. And these are the guys that we look to. And some of them would be doing life in prison. Or, or consider the Old Testament. Think about Israel. It's, it's Jewish people who write in the Old Testament. But they make themselves look like fools. They make the same silly mistakes over and over and over and over again. Well, when people write history, they cover up the blemishes. They cover up the bad stuff to portray them in a better light. Right? You, you remember U.S. history. 11th grade, they don't talk about how brutal and unjust and savage American settlers were killing Native Americans. Why? Because Americans wrote the history. We want to make ourselves look good, cover it up. You see, in the Bible, it's almost exactly the opposite. Right? In the Bible, the very guys who are writing it are totally incriminating themselves. Extraordinarily honest book. Or think about the central hero of the Bible. Right? The God-man come to his own creation, and he's murdered by men. But what's more, when you open the Bible, you're attributed with his guilt. I mean, that's not necessarily how Hollywood produces blockbusters. So we open this, we're convinced that it's our fault that the Son of God is on the cross, that we're held accountable for it. And then if we don't turn from our life apart from God and trust in Him, then we have hell to expect. A very honest book. Or even consider that women were the first at the resurrection. Here's why that's a big deal. Women were not reliable witnesses in the court of law at that time. 
So if these guys were lying, if they just want to get a movement started, or if they just wanted to gain some traction for their viewpoint, the last thing that they would do is record women first at the resurrection. It would destroy their case. So the Bible's full of honesty after honesty that point us uh, to God being the source of it. Third thing, fulfilled prophecy. This is my favorite point in the whole sermon. This is awesome. Y'all, this book, it is unbelievable. It is astonishing what this book claims. There are hundreds of examples of God saying something would happen and then it goes on to happen, sometimes hundreds of years later. It's remarkable. Let me just show you two examples um, from the book of Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to look at one prophecy regarding Christ's birth, another regarding his death. Isaiah 7, 14. This is written 700 years before Christ. Isaiah writes, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And if we fast forward 700 years, Matthew chapter 1, we see this. Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 700 years later, exactly as God had promised, this takes place. Let me show you one more example from Isaiah chapter 53. You may be familiar with this. One of the most astonishing things in the entire Bible. Um, again, written 700 years before Christ. In fact, this text, this passage, is so accurate regarding the death of Christ and what his death accomplished that a number of scholars have thought this had to be added later. This had to be added into the scripture after Christ because it, it's too detailed. But a few years ago when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, they found a copy of this that was dated to 150 years before Christ. So we know that's not true. Um, the first one written 700 years before Christ. And listen to this. Be refreshed by these words this morning. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. There is no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. His soul makes an offering for guilt. There might not be a clearer picture in the whole Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, of what God was accomplishing on our behalf through the death of Christ. And this was written 700 years before Jesus even came. I mean, think about this. Think about if there was some guy in 1300s. Okay, and he wrote, he wrote this down. He wrote down, yep, 21st century America. It's not a country yet, but it's going to be a country. America, they're going to have 
this president named Obama, and he, he's going to have some serious te technical difficulties when he rolls out his website. <laughs> right? If somebody wrote that down, we would pay attention to what that guy said. We, we would listen. The Bible is filled with hundreds of example, examples, even that detailed. It, it's astonishing. So that, that's the second reason. Um, that, or I'm sorry, the third reason from inside the Bible that we trust its claims. The fourth is this. The Bible offers proof, oftentimes, for miraculous claims or for extraordinary claims. Oftentimes, the Bible offers proof for its extraordinary claims. Let me give uh, an illustration to help us see this. If I told you guys that yesterday I was playing basketball with Bill Fowler, and Bill Fowler gets a steal and a breakaway, and he goes up, and he dunks it on 10 feet. Right, laughter is the proper response. Good. Okay, you guys are listening. Okay, but what if I like try to convince you of this? No, dude, Fowler dunked. Fowler, 10 foot goal, regulation, he dunked. You would say, no way, dude. I've got to see some proof of that. You've got to show me a video or something. Well, I need proof. Different religious texts make all kinds of extraordinary claims. What sets the Bible apart is that oftentimes the Bible will invite the reader, especially the original reader, to go and test the claim. Go see for yourself. See, this is very different than, say, Mormonism, for example, which bases its entire faith on this one man finding two tablets from God, then losing those tablets, and then recording what he saw on those tablets. There's no way to test that. But the Bible is asking us almost to investigate its claims, even to try to disprove them. Let, let me show you one example. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll look at verses 3 through 6 in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what Paul writes. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So this is the best news in world history right here, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, just like it was written, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. So Paul's writing this to the church in Corinth about 20 to 25 years after Christ died and rose. But he includes this little phrase, Jesus appeared to 500, most of whom are still alive. Well, unless he's trying to say something there, it's just an irre irrelevant detail. But here's what he's trying to say. He's saying, hey, church in Corinth, don't just take my word for it. Look, these people are just right around the Mediterranean, and most of them saw Jesus alive after he was dead. Go see for yourself. Go check it out. We see the same things throughout the, throughout the book of Joshua we saw it a number of times. Right? They set up stones, and the reason they set up stones was so that one day in the future, when they come across those stones, they see Oh, yeah. Dude, these are here. The only reason that these stones are here, there is no other reason for them to be here, but that God opened up the Jordan and we walked through on dry ground. The Bible's constantly saying to its original readers, go see for yourself. It points to it being true and from God. And then last, last internal evidence is this. There was no reason for the writers of Scripture to lie especially the New Testament writers. They had nothing to gain by lying. Let me explain. Did people die for 
what's not true. Sadly, some people do. They believe something so intensely, even if it's wrong, they might die for it. Do people die for what they know for a fact is not true? Probably not sane men. But what we see is we see 11 out of 12 apostles killed because they swore that Jesus was alive. They couldn't deny it. I mean, y'all, if this was a fabrication, if this was a lie, if they were trying to gain momentum for some agenda, surely one of them would have just said, it's not true, save me. But all of them went to their death backing the claims of the scripture. These guys had nothing to gain if they were to lie. All they were to know was death. Sane men aren't willingly tortured for something that's not true. So that should give us confidence as well. So those are our five evidences from within the Bible that show us that the Bible is God-breathed and faultless. It's unique and harmonious. It's honest. There's fulfilled prophecy. There's testable, extraordinary claims. And there's no reason to lie. I want to give us five more quick evidences from outside the Bible that I think will build our confidence in it. Uh, we'll move quickly. The first one is preservation. Even though the Bible is the most attacked book of all time, even though it's the most controversial book of all time, even though it's the most hated book of all time, it is by far the bestseller of all time. There are more early manuscripts for the Bible than any other book during its time period by far. The Bible has been translated into over 2,000 languages and more every single year. The Bible continues to advance. I think that should give us great confidence that even under such attack, it stands and has even progressed, uh, or advanced is probably a better word. So preservation. Second reason, archaeology. Archaeology. Over the course of history, archaeological data has actually confirmed what's written in the Scripture. Let me give you one example of that. Um, not too long ago, there's historians that were saying that certain places in the Bible just didn't exist. So Jericho, which we just studied in Joshua, I, which we studied in Joshua, those were made-up cities didn't really exist. Well, sure enough, archaeologists dig and they recover those cities. This happened a number of times in a number of different ways. In fact, I read this week that what a number of archaeologists are doing now is using the Bible as a guide for their digs. That should give us great confidence. I mean, that's pretty cool. Um, third thing, the extra-biblical witness. Here's what I mean by that. During the time the Bible was written, there was also secular history being written. And secular history confirms over a thousand facts that are written in the Bible. It validates them. And even if, you, if we just take Jesus' life, so 33 years, there are 39 different resources non-Christian or anti-Christian resources that confirm over a hundred facts about the life of Jesus alone from totally outside the Bible. So if we can trust the Bible for history, and we can, why, why shouldn't we trust it for salvation? Why wouldn't it also be accurate regarding God's plan, heaven and hell, eternity? Surely it is. Okay, two more evidences, um, and if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, these may seem a little bit subjective to you, um, 
But if you've experienced these things, they might carry more weight than uh, any of the other kind of reasons we've looked at. The first, uh, or I'm sorry, the first of those reasons that we should believe that the Bible is God-breathed and faultless is its ability to change lives. Over the course of human history, millions of lives have been totally transformed unexplainably apart from the Bible. Even you guys. So many of your lives are different because of this book. I loved last week hearing Chuck Mitchell, 60-year-old businessman in our, in our congregation, just talk about how he listens to the Bible on the way to and from work and how it's transforming his life. That's awesome. And, and friends, man, if, if you don't know Christ, let me just appeal to you from my own experience. This is my story. I was running full speed after the world, only wanting to be the man. That was my only priority in life. I just wanted to be the man. And then sophomore year of college, I started reading this book. And my whole world flipped upside down. I wasn't looking for my life to flip upside down. But my life was totally transformed as I was exposed to this book. And not just my behavior, but my heart. Other books can't do that. It's what happened with my wife. It's what happened with so many of you guys. The Bible has the ability to change lives. And so, if you're wondering, if you're questioning about the Bible, I'll just encourage you to, to open it up. And maybe start in the Gospels and read it with an open mind and an open heart. Not, not trying to attack it, right, but just... God, if this is true, would you reveal yourself to me? And here's what I will tell you. If you are honestly seeking him, he will reveal himself to you. He will. He loves to. He's a supernatural God who delights to save sinners like us. And so expose yourself to the word. Last evidence. Again, relatively subjective, but I think you'll know what I mean. The testimony of the Holy Spirit. Another reason we should believe that the Bible is God-breathed and faultless, is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Here's what I mean. Have y'all ever just been reading the Word? And it just like stops you in your tracks. And it cuts to the core of you. And you're like, dude, I, I thought I was reading the book, but the book is reading me kind of thing, you know? I mean, that's what happens, Right? And you just know, right? You know this is the word of God. This is different. This is not like, I'm trying to think of some book I read in high school, but I didn't really read books in high school. <laughs> it's not like another book, a biology textbook. That's fair. I didn't read that, but I know they exist. <laughs> but it's like, it's like you knew you were going to marry that person, or you knew that it was the right college for you when you stepped foot on campus, or you knew that you needed to take that job or make that move. Sometimes you just know. And with the Bible, because of the Holy Spirit, when you have the Spirit of God, you just know. This is an extraordinary book. Bible claims it's God-breathed and faultless. Jesus claims it's God-breathed and faultless. And then all these evidences point to that as reality. But instead of just getting that information, I, I want us to close with application. 
Three application points for us, and then we'll kind of land the plane here. Um, the first thing is this. I think the proper response for us as we consider the Word of God is to wonder at it. But before anything else, I think we need to wonder. I think we need to stand in awe of the reality that God Almighty has, in fact, revealed Himself in written form. You guys, an invisible God has not left us on our own. He has spoken and he has recorded this so that we might know him, so that we might be wise for salvation. We should wonder at that. That's incredible. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. To me, the Bible is not God, but it is God's voice, and I do not hear it without awe. I think we will do well to hear the Bible, to read the Bible with awe. It's the first thing. Second thing, I hope that understanding that this is God-breathed and faultless will cause us to pursue God through his word. It's our P in the specs of a disciple, pursuit of God. And so as we start a new year, read the word and study the word and memorize the word and listen to the word and meditate on the word. David said it this way. He said, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. Resolve to read God's word. And, and, and y'all, not because you have to. Forget that. Because you want to, because you get to. If God has spoken, do you really want to read the Hunger Games more than you want to read that? No. If we believe that this is God's words, let's devour it. Let's start our days with it. Let's share it with our families. Let's study it with our friends. Let's orient our lives around it. Why would we not? So let's pursue God through the word. That's the second thing. And then lastly, let's allow the scripture to take its proper authority in our lives. Not equal to us or under us as if we have the right to determine if it's true or not or if it's right, but submitting to it as the highest authority in our lives. Here's what I mean. If you and I are trying to determine what's true, we compare that thing to our highest authority. So maybe for you, your highest authority is science. And so if you're trying to determine if something's true, then you say, what does science say about it? Or maybe it's reason. What, is, what does reason say about this or that? Or this, what does my personal experience tell me about that? Well, friend, if you've been convinced this morning that this book is God-breathed and faultless, then it's got to take the ultimate authority in your life. It's got to take the ultimate authority in my life. If I'm trying to determine what's true, this has got to be the book. If God has spoken, if this really is sourced in God, then it calls the shots. God calls the shots through it. Right? But not just for truth, but also for life. Right? Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1 that in the Word we have all that we need for life and godliness. So let's believe it and obey it. And what will happen is as we give our life to God under the instruction of this book, we'll realize that we're finding our life. This is what I was made for. That is what you will find, my friend. You will find that you were created for this. So those three things, wonder at the word, pursue God through the word, submit properly to the word.
Three applications for us today. What the Bible claims about itself is astonishing. Jesus validates those claims. And all these other evidences point to them being a reality. We can trust God's word. We can build our whole life on it. And most importantly, through this book, we can come to know the God who's given it to us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you so much that you have not abandoned us, that you've not left us clueless or hopeless, that you've spoken. Lord, I ask for forgiveness. Um, I've not loved your word like I should. I've not communed with you through your Bible like I can. I've not pursued you or submitted to you. And I pray that you'd help me to do that. I thank you that there's grace when we fail. I thank you that Christ has died on our behalf and risen again, that all our life and all our righteousness is in him. And I pray in the new year, Lord, that we would, in response to that good news, pursue you through your word. Thank you that you've given it to us, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.